where we need this story. It is this year, at least in my lifetime. If there's a year where we need to be reminded of what Christ went through on our behalf, it's right now. And so as I prayed through what to share on Easter, I really felt like there's no way to improve upon the story that's already been written. There's nothing that needs to be added. We just need to know. We need to be reminded, what is the story of this week? Why is this so significant? And so I'm, I'm going to read it. Of course, I'm going to say a couple little things, but we're going to just spend time in Matthew 27 and 28. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a device that you want to bring along, we're, we're keeping the beauty and aesthetics of this place by not having screens up, which I know is a little challenging with with songs and such, but uh, we've overcome much more than that, right? And so we can handle this. Um, We're going to start in Matthew 27 and verse 32 through 37, okay? So this is in in the NRSV. It says, and this is as Jesus is going to be crucified. It says, as they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry this cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided Jesus' clothes among themselves by casting lots. And when they sat down there and kept watch over him, over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Since Genesis 3, in the story that we know of as Scripture, the Bible, Old Testament, and New, sin is the intruder, right? And it has corrupted everything. And at this point, we see it's so intruding that that people are acting like it's normal to take Jesus' clothes as souvenirs from this. That's what, that's what this is. This is not they're casting lots because they don't have clothes and they want to know who gets clothes. They're, they're taking this as a souvenir. And people are gathered around, and this is a normalized thing in Roman culture. This is public Roman lynching. This is how they did it. And so people gathered around and took souvenirs from these criminals and from Jesus to go home and say, hey, I got this piece of clothing from this person. And I paid for this piece of clothing from this person to remember that day where we watched live be taken from somebody. That's how dark this is. That's how comfortable this intruder of sin is. And they rode above his head in a mocking way, king of the Jews, right? And I know sometimes we don't look at this on Easter because we deal with it on Good Friday and, and so on. On Easter, we just look at him risen, but I think, I think we need to feel the weight of it today, all of it, because it's not just that he's risen, it's, it's that all of this happened. And so in picking up in verse 45, it says, from noon on, darkness came over the whole land, until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, and forgive me, I'm not great at other languages, Eli, Eli, lama samachthane, 
which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and gave him a drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and he breathed his last. The theologian Christopher Morgan said that sin has two evil children, suffering and death. That these are the result of sin and they have followed sin along since Genesis 3. And here it is from noon on as if the sun itself couldn't watch. High noon, even creation could not watch as its creator was, was tortured, was suffering as if it, the creator was subject to this intruder. Jesus began as Emmanuel, and now it appears that the Father has left. And though it's a public spectacle, his only companions are suffering and death. Howard Thurman says that hate and violence are the great insulator where one man denies the existence of another or wills their non-existence. And here's the thing about violence. It can be physical, like what he endured on the cross, what Jesus endured on the cross. But it can also be systemic, like a system that normalizes putting people on a cross and selling their clothing and souvenirs. And it can also be relational. And violence can be emotional, it can be intellectual, it can be in any level where we just will the non-existence of somebody else, right? That's the way of sin, suffering and death, hate and violence. And for a second, I want to pause. Because I think this year... Many of us have felt like we live here at a place where even creation seems to have to turn its head, where darkness seems to be winning, where hatred seems to be winning, where sin is intruding and just becoming way too comfortable, where hate and violence have made themselves at home. And here, in that setting, Jesus breathes his last. But in Jesus breathing his last, everything changes. Yes, at the resurrection, everything changes. But by breathing his last, everything changes. Look at verse 51 with me. Right after it said that Jesus breathed his last, it says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Okay, life burst forth. As soon as Jesus breathed his last, life burst forth in the form of people who were in the tomb coming up and hanging out in Jerusalem. I don't understand that. I've 
looked at commentaries. I've looked for somebody to make sense of it. I don't see anybody making sense of it, except life wins. Death has grown comfortable, but life has the last say. And even before Jesus has resurrected, we have people who already had their funeral up out of their tombs walking around the city. We have population numbers totally changed in that city. Like, how are they going to make sense of, like, records, right? I buried you two weeks ago, and now you want your bank account again? (laughs) But that's what's going on. People are looking for a place to stay and a place to grab lunch and all this kind of stuff. Relatives are going down the street, and they, they see somebody walking to their home. Who is the relative? And they're like, I buried you. And like, I know, I was there. I was asleep, but I was there, and now I'm awake. And what happened? What changed all of this? This day where it was dark at noon, and then dead relatives were awake at four. What is this day? It says that this, this veil, and, and it's not like a, like a wedding veil, like this pretty little veil, but this veil in the temple, this thick veil, like that thick, is torn in two. What is the veil? It is the thing that separates people from the most holy God. And it is torn in two from the top to the bottom. So nobody could say that, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger came in and ripped it in half himself. But God tore this thing in two. At the moment where Jesus breathed his last, the separation that was never supposed to be, the separation that was a part of sin intruding into our lives, it separated us from God. That was torn. So that feeling that you and I have where we feel like we can't access God, we can't get to God, there's something between us, that's not true. That's not true. That's an intruding thought. That's an intruding emotion. Jesus took care of all that. You see, at this point, the intruder is called for what it is. In verse 5 and 6 of chapter 28, we see that the people have, Mary Magdalene and, and others have gone to the tomb here. And the angel said to these women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. We probably know the significance that the very first people who preach the gospel are women. We know that it matters that, that God has a heart and a bend towards those that the systems seem to cause suffering and evil to. And in this day, and sadly too many days after, that's women. And so the very first people that hear the good news that not just are people raising out of random tombs, but Jesus is not in the tomb, the first people who get to see the evidence that, yeah, that's where he was, but he is not there are these women. You see, this is where sin and death and suffering had tried to claim squatters' rights and say that this world is sins, that this world belongs to death, that this world belongs to suffering life in the form that it has always been in Jesus Christ bursts back. And all that death has to throw at Jesus cannot contain him. 
You see, we've got to look at the weight of it. We've got to look at the cross. We've got to look at the darkness, all of this, because we feel that, right? And that could not contain Jesus. And Jesus said that I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And if death can't contain life, then we don't have to live like it does. So he goes on in this context. Let's look at verse 17. When when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but, but some still doubted, which is a fascinating verse, right? They don't know what to do with the risen Jesus. They're like Genevieve or like you or I. We don't always know what to do with this story. There was doubt. But Jesus didn't scold them. Instead, he said, he came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of this age is not death. The end of this age is life. The end of this age is life to the full. Now here's the thing. Genesis 1, we're given authority, right? We're made in God's image. We are given authority. And then we squander it. And, 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 and we, have, we have this intruder come in that steals our authority. And what is happening here at the end of Matthew is Jesus is going around collecting authority again. And he says, all, all that I've gone through, now all authority has been given to me. And what does he do with that authority? He turns around and hands it to us again. All of it's been given to me because of that. Now go, therefore. Go where you need to go, but don't go acting as if sin and death and suffering are the norm. Don't go acting like they have the last say. Don't go acting when you confront them like you have to bow to that. No, the authority is his, and he is the life. And so he says, now, my children, go, therefore, and go tell other people. Go tell other people that, that we've won, that the way of violence, of belittling one another, of not recognizing the humanity of one another, that that's not the way, that the way is me, which instead goes and recognizes somebody, which instead goes and sees with dignity and honor the God image on somebody else. He says, go baptize people. Go declare that they are brand new, that death no longer has a hold on them, that that the stink coming off of them is life, not death. I mean, that's so powerful that this authority is given right back to us. And then he says, and remember, when you go, because some of us are going to go right and some left and some up and some down. And that's the way it's supposed to go. We spread out. But as we go, we're to remember he's with us always. That was true when he was an infant named Emmanuel, God with us. That was true when he was on the cross feeling alone. That was true in the resurrection. In fact, if we pay attention to Jesus' words, he says, I have to go so the Holy Spirit can be closer to you than I even can. So the Holy Spirit can live within you. And so as you go and you go confront a moment of suffering. Or a moment where somebody doesn't recognize your humanity. 
or a moment where there's violence or, or death or sin, remember He's with you. And He's not with you just like they're there. He's with you as life. He's with you as risen. Still with, with scars, but those scars are no embarrassment. Those scars just say, hey, look at what I have overcome. So you and I, we don't have to hide ours. We don't have to hide the moments where we have butted up against sin or death or suffering or hatred or violence. We know that his life is enough. More than ever this year, at least for me, I have felt and seen those five, hatred, death, suffering, violence, and sin. Maybe it's because we lived slower in COVID. Maybe it's because it was all over social media and people were were voicing things. But I've seen that more than ever. But on Easter, we are reminded that all of that is the backdrop, in the background. It's present, but that's not the story. Christ is center. The full weight of what he faced and he conquered and He has declared that you and I, we are his. That all creation is being reclaimed and remade in his image. And now he is living within us. That's the story. And so as we go to to celebrate communion in a moment, this is a celebration. Now, remember, this this takes a master's degree to open up, but I I trust you all. This is the story where we can come with any bit of suffering that our body now feels. We can come with any encounter with death, any violence or hatred we have have projected or received, any sin. We come with that and, and give that over to God, but then we take his broken body and his poured out blood, remembering that he covers all of this, and he's with us. In the words that we know to be true because of Easter, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So let's pray, and then we're going to have a, a, a moment where some people are going to join me up front. We're going to read a little liturgy for us all. Um, if you don't have a cup, maybe we have, raise your hand, and we'll have somebody bring you one. Um, Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that this day is bigger than eggs and bunny rabbits. And it's even bigger than moments of spring where we notice seasonal life. But this is a day that we know that your life wins and your life remains even when our lives feel like winter. Thank you that we don't have to fear suffering or death, hatred or violence, sin. Thank you that they don't have the last word. Thank you for what you endured on our behalf, but thank you that you are risen. And as you rose, now we can trust that your life can rise within us. That we can know your joy, your life, your hope. Thank you for Easter. Amen.
And Eastertide is a great time for us to realize the impact of the resurrection. It's a time for us to see, okay, what all does the crucifixion and resurrection mean in our life? And it's a good time to radically reorient our life around God, to re-up our commitment. Like, okay, God, I want to be yours. I want to be living surrendered to you. Now is a time for us uh, to, to kind of go through that and, and do that very thing. And, and there's a quote of what it looks like to commit ourselves that we see in, in Howard Thurman here. He says, the secret to being able to commit our lives to God is to be able to want one thing, to seek one thing, to organize the resources of one's life around a single end. And slowly, surely, the life becomes one with that end. And so we have this motivation to, to be centered around one thing, to be committed to one thing. But if you're like me, and I know some of you, I know some of you are, we want to like microwave that and just make it happen real quick, right? We want to be teleported to the situation and circumstances and to even the person that we believe that we're going to become. Like, great, God, make me become that right now. Like, I blink my eyes and I want to be that. And God doesn't seem to work that way. So there's this, this verse that you all know that was on the walls of, of my aunt's homes growing up. I feel like every house had this stitched on the walls. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. And most of you probably even know this. It's, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future with hope. And that kind of verse was read as like, yes, as I leave today, I'm going to go inherit that future right now. And, and then we don't get the good parking spot and we're upset and we think that the verse is broken and it, it, it all falls apart. We want this to be instant. We want this ease of our commitment to be instant, like that really bad cup of ramen that I always ate in, in college. We, we want it to be that quick, where the meal is just done and our change is just done and our commitment to God is just done and the good plans that God has for us, we just know them right now. But I don't know that we always know the context of Jeremiah 29. I don't know if you all have looked at it. Actually, if you've got your Bible or your device, even as I'm talking, just read through that chapter. Just You don't have to read every word. Just kind of briefly look at it. What's happening here is Jeremiah 29 is written to a people who are in exile. They're away from their land. And they're in exile because they drifted. They drifted away from God in their worship their worship became really pretty grotesque. They, they started taking advantage of one another. They stopped acting like God's people and, and just left totally and drifted into this other place. And in this other place where they're exiled and they're aching and they want different circumstances, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to prosper. And they all hear that like, yes, sounds fantastic. But look at verse 10. The verse before says, 
For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. My plan is for you to prosper in 70 years. Sit on that one for a second. Cross-stitch that one on your wall. Think through that one each day. They're in exile, wanting a different situation, desiring for God to move. They don't want to be where they are. And in verse 10, I mean, I'm sorry, in verse 5, God says, in this land of exile, build houses, plant some gardens. If you need vegetables today, you don't plant a garden, right? You, you, you run to the farmer's market. But if you're going to be there for a minute, you plant a garden. And God says, okay, plant, plant a garden. I know the plans I have for you, so plant the garden. It's okay. In verse 7, he says, seek the welfare of the city. This city that, that has now brought you into exile, that has harmed you, that is not your favorite, these circumstances that you don't love, seek the welfare of the people around you. Be invested in them. Look out for them. Because I know the plans that I have for you. The plans to prosper you. But this doesn't happen in two seconds like we want it to. In verse 13, it says, When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all of your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. He's prophesying to these scattered people, I'll bring you back. I'm going to do this. This is going to happen. You can, you can trust that I am the Lord who, who desires for you to prosper. And yet, in this place, as you wait, build houses, plant gardens, seek the welfare of the city. This is written to a scattered people. Now let's look at us for a minute. I think many of us feel pretty scattered, right? I think one of the things that's been hard about COVID, one of the 792 things that's challenging, is that we've kind of realized how scattered we are. And sometimes you feel scattered or spread thin because you're scattered and because you're spread thin. That's why you feel like that. That seems like a stupid thing to say, but I don't think we always realize that, like, if we're exhausted, it's probably because we're exhausted. If we're spread thin, it's because we're spread too thin. We're involved in too much. We're energized. Our energy is split. All of these kind of things. And if you're like me, you get into this season that's different. And you're asking the question, how did I get here? How did we get so scattered? And how do we become whole? And that's where Thurman gives us these three questions that we'll look at over these next three weeks as guides. And the first question that he asks is, he asks each one of us to ask the question, who am I? See, in order for us to be truly committed to God, we need to know who it is that we are. And Thurman says that we see who we are actually in our decisions. It's not so much that we choose whether something is right or wrong, 
but we choose in this way. He says, if I do this thing, what bearing will it have on the binding relationships that give me my sense of worth of counting in and for something? So he's saying that we're not deciding, yes, I should go here because it's the right decision. We're deciding I should go here because those relationships that answer the idea of who I am say that I should go here. And if I go here, well, those relationships might be severed. They might cost something. And if I don't have that relationship, if I don't have those, typically it begins with our family of origin and then our friend group, maybe the family that we have established. If, if I don't do what they expect of me, then I may sever or damage those relationships. And then I might not know who I am. And so we end up being spread thin because we're going around trying to establish who we are in all of these relationships, and it just doesn't work that way. We can't be committed to God when we are tethered to 5,000 different identities. But that comes from this deep desire to want to be known. And if we're honest, we will settle for being recognized. We'll settle for being caricatured. So we just moved into this new neighborhood a, a couple months ago, and uh, I like to go for walks, and so I'll go walk Iroquois Park, and I kind of walk the same route all the time because I'm a creature of habit. And when I go, I put on my basketball sneakers, and this current pair that I have, they are bright red, and they are uh, Donovan Mitchell Spider-Man shoes that we found at an outlet mall that I, that I bought, but they are bright red. And I never wear red except for my shoes. And so I'm going on these walks all the time in these bright red shoes. And I'm walking through Iroquois Park once. And a neighbor that I have never met stops me and says, hey, I live across the street from you. I was like, "You do? how do you know that you live across the street from you? And she knows because of my shoes. I'm the only one in Louisville, apparently, who will wear these shoes. And, and she's like, oh, well, I recognize you by your shoes. And I know that I live across the street from you because I see you go for walks all the time in your bright red shoes. And I go, oh, that's kind of cool. And I meet her and I can't remember her name and all of this, but we met each other. I'm recognized. That feels awesome. Felt a little intimidating at first, but then like, oh, okay, that's great. So the next day I go for my walk and I put my red shoes on, but I put them on different. I was a little bit like, oh, these make me recognize. She knows who I am. She knows where I live because of this. And it was really silly. It's, it, the shoes don't matter. But all of a sudden I realized like I'm noticed because of these ridiculously bright neon red shoes. And she, otherwise, I just blend in with the world. But she picked me out of Iroquois Park because of my shoes. There's no real consequence to the shoes, but we, we do this all the time. We make decisions and we... We do things because maybe someone will recognize us or remember us or we're afraid that they won't or they'll judge the decision we're making as, as negative. So some of us were in a training this week for, uh, for this spiritual listening, the spiritual direction. And in this training, the idea of taking a day for ourselves to go listen to God came up several times. And you just feel in the room like, yeah, that's what I need 
But I don't know if the relationships I have around me allow for this. And so I can't do it. I don't know if I can really go do this and not damage the relationship. So I can't do what I actually need. We don't want to inconvenience someone. We don't want to be understood as selfish. We don't want someone to question our motives or our abilities or any of this. So we don't do what it takes to be committed to God. Sometimes we feel an urge to go back to school or start a new job or, or do something that's new. But one of the things that really matters in the decision is I don't know if I can do that because people might think this or might think that. It's not so easy as, well, God's inviting me into this. But it's meant to be. You see, we have to give ourselves to something that is big enough to handle us. And that's been part of the challenge, I think, for all of us. We look for friends or family who can, who can name us, who can give us our whole identity, and it doesn't work. So then we just end up spread thin because maybe this person can handle 4% of me, and this person 8 and this person 3 And then we end up disjointed and scattered. But the Holy Spirit wants to do this work within us. And the Holy Spirit will start to slowly invade our lives. And it feels like an invasion because we're scattered. And the Holy Spirit wants to slowly invade us and sever these strings of identity that we have tied to circumstances and relationships and other things so that our identity is only in God. You see, he's not necessarily severing relationships, not necessarily saying we need to quit our jobs and all of this, but he, the Holy Spirit is severing these attachments that we have where we can be wholly committed to God, even in exile, even in these situations that we would love escape from. You see, if there's spots in your life right now where you feel stuck, maybe, maybe God's going to quickly alleviate those circumstances. But maybe you're a bit like the people in Jeremiah 29. And maybe it's time to plant a garden. Maybe it's time to seek the welfare of your neighbor. Maybe it's time to trust that God knows the plans that God has for you. And you can trust this slow invasion of the Holy Spirit that is teaching you and transforming you to be more committed to God by bringing your identity all together. Slowly, where it's taken away from the things and the people that you currently are identified by and instead allowing the whole of who you are to be identified by Christ. And then out of that, you minister in love the relationships around you. This week, I want to urge you in your circumstances to join the Holy Spirit in the work that God's doing within you. Ask God, what is it that you're doing? And can I join you? Where is it that you want to free me? Where is it that you want to grow me? Where is it that you want to teach me commitment? Who am I? As we we saying, we are who he says we are. But what does it look like to live more into that? I believe it'll be this slow invasion 
of the Holy Spirit in our lives, where we're transformed, where we'll know God in a depth that we can only now begin to dream of. In a few minutes, we're, we're going to have small groups available for you all to go into these breakouts. Before that, we're going to receive communion. But even before that, I just want to pray over us, and I want to invite you to pray with me, okay? Holy Spirit, we, we want to trust you. There are parts of our lives that we do. There are parts of our lives that we don't. There are parts of us that feel like they're in exile. There's parts of us that feel like they're partially recognized, partially known, that they're caricatured, even within ourselves. But God, would you deeply know us? Would you continue to turn us into a community that deeply knows each other, makes room for one another, has compassion for ourselves and for all those around us? And as we wait till we know what you have for us as a church, would you you help us to patiently plant some gardens and build our houses and seek the welfare of this city we love. Thanks. In your name. Amen.